A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert San Charles Haddad. Haddad founded the Palestinian Rowing Federation and served as its president for 11 years. In 2002 and 2003, Haddad was a consultant at the Palestinian Olympic Committee. Haddad is the author of the new book, The File. Origins of the Munich Massacre. Let's hear what he has to say about the 1972 Munich Olympic Massacre. Hi, Sam. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on the show. So can you tell us, uh, our listeners, a little bit about your book, The File, Origins of the Munich Massacre, and what inspired you to write it? Sure. Um, The title of the book sometimes causes some confusion um, because most people think about the Munich massacre is occurring in 1972, but there's a swastika and the date 1936 right on the cover of the book. Uh, and this is because the 1936 Berlin Olympic Games were the linchpin that led ultimately to the recognition of the State of Israel's Olympic Committee, albeit under the name Palestine Olympic Committee in 1934. And this was, of course, in the lead up to the Games when the condition facing European uh, Jewry, especially Jews in Germany, was very dire. And there was an increasing boycott movement to uh, take the games away from Germany because they had been awarded in the waning days of the Weimar Republic. But of course, Hitler came to power in January of 1933. And then there this sparked the debate, should the games, given their um, 
peaceful mission and mission to bring people of the world together should they be allowed to continue under the Nazi regime. And so the file speaks to um, several levels of understanding of how this file was handled. Um, it's actually referred to as Le Dossier um, inside uh, the International Olympic Committee. So the file, it was the Palestine file. Um, you can refer to many other files in the Olympic Committee that are polemical, Tibet, you know, issues around Gibraltar and other territories that have either full Olympic status or no Olympic status and yet represent, you know, distinct people. And so what uh, that's at one level. And then the other level, of course, with the subtitle is that there are a lot of policy decisions that occur in the 1930s that ultimately influenced the way the International Olympic Committee handled what happened in 1972. And I think that's the really important part of my book. There are a lot of new understandings and big reveals in the book with respect to what was going on between the three competing uh, or interested parties, the Zionist sports movement, the Palestinian Arabic national, national sports movement, and then also the International Olympic Committee, which we should remember is also a young and growing system and movement at that time. And Berlin, in many ways, sets the modern framework that we still adhere to today. So the International Olympic Committee was very reluctant, given the resources that the Nazi uh, government put into hosting the Games, very reluctant to have that boat be rocked. And so there were decisions then that then influenced memory and decisions later. And of course, the, the big one in the room is Avery Brundage, who was uh, ascended to the executive of the International Com Olympic Committee in 1936 in many ways because he helped defeat the boycott effort in the United States. Um, and then so I just want because I have a lot of questions already. Sure. Um, <laughs> and I just want to clarify uh, what was the uh, United States boycott at the time? And can you ex give a little background on who Avery Brundage was to our listeners? Sure. So I'll start with Avery Brundage. He had been a U.S. athlete at the Stockholm Olympics in 1912. And in my book, all of the key characters were somehow affiliated with Stockholm. Um, especially in leadership. So the International Olympic Committee system is a very slow-moving system and had long leadership tenures all the way through to 1972. And so by the time the Munich massacre happens, Avery Brundage had started his experience with the Olympic movement as an athlete in 1912, ascends to the executive, had been president of the uh, U.S. Olympic Committee, and therefore was in a critical role to, you know, kill any civil boycott effort against the games within the U.S. Uh, and then by 1972, as president of the International Olympic Committee and presiding over the deaths, you know, the memorial service that was referred to yesterday in your show of the Israeli athletes. Now, the boycott effort itself was very, you know, we're very lucky in the United States to have a purely um, grassroots sports system. Uh, in fact, the organizing committee, uh, the two key German organizers, um, Theodore Leewald, who was Jewish president of the German Olympic Committee, as well as Karl Diem, who was secretary of the organizing committee, until they were repackaged, you know, by Hitler and the Nazis into more, um, let's say, um, symbolic roles. Um, mm -hmm. Because, of course, it was organized by, an, a, you know, a Nazi department that was set up to oversee the games organizing. Mm. Those individuals actually came to the U.S. to learn from the U.S. what made American sports so great. 
And it was this greatness of sort of civic engagement in America that led to a real threat to boycott the games because in our country, we can have grassroots systems pull out completely and say, okay, we're not going to participate in this process. And fundamentally, that was, uh, you know, American collegiate sport. And at that time, the US Olympic Committee was just a temporary organization that would be formed to oversee a delegation, but it wasn't the chief authority for sports in the United States. American sports was deeply rooted in the Young Men's Christian Association Network, Young Men's Hebrew Association, which became you know, Jewish community centers, you had college sports. And so there were different camps that were saying, look, driven primarily by um, large organized Catholic blocs and then also communist blocs within the U.S. labor movement saying we can't go to these games and we can't espouse these games. So can you walk us through the connection between these 1936 Olympics in Berlin and then the 1972 Olympics in Munich? Sure. So first and foremost, it's a really tight window. And there was some discussion yesterday about, you know, why was the German Olympic Committee so reticent over so many years not to take any official position or recognize the athletes and so on. Germany has a very conflicted history after the war. You know, we forget as Americans sometimes that they lost the war and the country was divided between occupying powers. And um, part of the pact ultimately to preserve Western Germany was to denazify former Nazis and to you know, create a German democratic government. Uh, until today, there are very strict rules about how you can even research these matters in Germany. And even if you have information on an individual who is uh, related clearly in the archival record to um, even the SS or, you know, some of the more extreme Nazi factions responsible for severe crimes, there are a lot of legal issues that you have to go through to be able to even discuss the matter publicly. And this is the very sad story of um, a divided nation, which we can probably reflect on with respect to the legacy of the civil war in America, in the United States. There's no such thing as a conflict that divides a nation that doesn't lead a ve- leave a very dark legacy and a lot of questionable, questionable moral positions. So I think, you know, first people need to remember it's close. So you talked about, yesterday how people went to Dachau and laid wreaths from Israel. And yes, it's true that some of the delegation members had actually been concentration camp victims. And very importantly for the Olympic world of athletes, which sees themselves very much as a bubble, you know, running in parallel to global politics, many Olympians, Jewish or not, had died in World War II and specifically in the Nazi Holocaust. And so it was a very emotional and emotive um, games around the issue of the new image of Western democratic Germany, which we should remember has a communist East Germany right next to it. And so all of that language around the visuals of the game and the color palette that was selected for the game was very much focused on, we don't want any reference to the past um, because it really was something that I mean, it was it, it's it was raw. People were alive who had committed severe crimes, who had survived severe crimes. And when we talk about severe, we're talking the worst imaginable atrocities. So, um, you know, that I think is part of what explains the German position over time. Even if we don't understand it as Americans, it's part of what was the framework for keeping the peace and the balance of power. Um That said, it is fair and important to recognize that there was extreme Arab pressure from the Arab camp 
to not concede anything to the Israeli side. And that's really, in many ways, why I addressed the topics I did in my book, entitled it The Origins of the Munich Massacre, because that pressure and narrative is built on a very exclusively Arab position. But it's not necessarily what actually occurred historically within the Zionist camp, because you can draw a line in Zionism, the concerted effort of world Jewry to organize its political and financial affairs on its own through establishment of the Jewish national home. You can draw a line before 1948 where its policy positions were actually quite different and invitational, even if they desired political control of the territory and a dominant position because they were more organized and better connected and frankly, better strategists. You know, and this is clear in my book that even within the sport file, they were just much better positioned to lead. Um, And then there's the after 1948. And that's a whole different issue and would require different books and different research. But the Arab position in sport, historically, the pressure that was applied first through Egypt and Lebanon and then through other National Olympic Committees from the region, that Israel doesn't have a right to exist in sport because Israel stole the Palestine force sport file is false. And this is not an easy message for the Arab camp to receive. Um, But I think that the file does a good job through thousands of documents to show how and why things went very wrong. And very sadly for the Arab-Palestinian position, this has to do with the Nazi plot and a Nazi agenda to kill cooperation between Jews, Muslims, and Christians in Jerusalem in sport. Mm. So going back to the, the, the 72 games, how, how does this history here affect the security measures or lack thereof taken by German officials and the IOC at the, at the 1972 games? So the Germans definitely did not have adequate security Um, In terms of some of the discussion yesterday, that's all pretty spot on. Um, In 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 2002, ABC produced a documentary called Our Greatest Hopes, Our World's Worst Fears, which is, of course, taken from that quotation um, by Jim McKay that you played in the show. And that documentary was the first to really dig into the German um, issue. Uh, the lack of training, the lack of preparedness, the lack of ability to handle the airport scenario at First and Fork, uh, uh, First and Felbrook Air Base, and so, yes, unfortunately, um, the Germans really were completely unprepared to handle this type of issue, and it is true that they had indications in advance notice. Now. The dilemma, of course, for an organizing committee is that it's a private temporary company. I work within the Olympic sector. So these are temporary companies. There was a lot of language yesterday about the National Olympic Committee of Germany. But in fact, an organizing committee is in charge of the games. And it's set up a couple of years before bid. If it wins the bid, it runs all the coordinating for that. And then it hosts the games. And about a year later, it will disband and write the financial reports and sell those on to the next organizing committee for lessons learned. The big one from Munich was security. As correctly noted yesterday, I mean, almost nothing was spent on security. Now we can frankly, you know, when it comes to determining um, 
blame the way that you do on the show with respect to security budgets today. And one of the reasons they're so expensive, definitely Black September organization is responsible for that because there was, you know, nobody had ever seen such a high profile event be seized in the way that it was live on TV. There are other very important high profile attacks during this period, the hostage taking of the OPEC meeting for the oil producing countries, which led to the deaths of several delegates. Um, you know, the triple hijacking in Jordan. Um, there are other events that are going on. This is a period of high profile attacks to try and put Palestine back on the map. Interestingly enough, many of them are organized with foreign support, you know, like German socialists or Japanese Red Army. And so this is a, a sort of pan-Marxist agenda at the time. Um, and most of it is through PFLP the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which was a Marxist faction led by a Christian or founded by a Christian Palestinian. And so my book also looks at the specific Christian role in uh, being sympathetic to Nazi messaging and how that actually had a very detrimental effect in the Arab-Palestinian position in sport, because basically the Arab Christian sports leadership, which dominated the Arab sports landscape in Palestine during the British mandate for Palestine, they decided to walk away from negotiations with the Jewish camp in favor of a Nazi channel to the Olympic recognition, but not understanding that the IOC is the only body that grants recognition, not the Nazis or the Nazi organizing committee. And so this is that important connection. So when they attack Munich, it's really important to understand that those people in the leadership structure of the Palestine Liberation Organization, they know that the Zionists or the Jewish position, the Jewish sports camp, had been given an Olympic committee in 1934. But there's a revisionist history and narrative going on saying it was taken from Palestine when in fact they walked away in favor of what appears to be a Nazi channel to the games. And that Nazi angle is through the Young Men's Christian Association linked to an effort to kill the boycott in America. What was the reasoning behind the Palestinians' attack at Munich? What were they literally attempting to do? So literally, it's what we understand historically, and you covered yesterday in the show. I mean, there was, a, there was an open war going on from 1948 to 1972. It takes on a new angle in the 50s and 60s with the establishment of the PLO, which op you know opens the whole front of guerrilla warfare or terrorism, term it whatever you want, but armed struggle. And there were a lot of prisoners from this conflict. And so the stated objective was a prisoner exchange, which they might have been able to accomplish. But um, really, the era of great prisoner exchanges between Palestinian and Israeli combatants and, and systems begins more in the 19, early 1980s. All right. And so the first major prisoner exchange is around 83, 84. So whether they actually would have achieved the prisoner exchange on the scale that they wanted, you know, the 200 plus combatants that they wanted, you know, the jury's out on that one, I suppose. Um, the issue though, is that for me, let's say as a Palestinian Christian author um, and, and somebody specialized in this topic is today you'll often hear the narrative and it was in the documentary one day in September, you know, we don't, we didn't go to kill. 
Well, uh, you know, I think this is a little bit of a weak narrative. You went with guns, grenades, and other things. And of course, if you walk into somebody's apartment at 4.30 in the morning with that, someone might resist. And it's true that, of course, the first deaths occur in the apartment struggle to take over the apartment. But these were not pretty deaths. A lot about Munich has been shrouded in secrecy. And I won't say who of the Israelis. You mentioned yesterday throwing a body over the balcony. Um, this is, of course, extremely disrespectful, treating the body of a dead individual in this way. Um, but, you know, one of the other individuals was also castrated and has had his genitalia put in his mouth. So this was a form of torture. These revelations only came out in the past few years. Mm-hmm. Munich remains shrouded in a lot of secrecy because there were so many vested interests and it was also such a horrible attack. I mean, if you actually look at the photos of the burned helicopter, these are not pretty photos. They're not easy to get access to, but you can find them if you sleuth around on some of the darker corners of the internet. So this was a very ugly affair. And the lesson I think, you know, for our camp is you can say you start something with an intention, but once you open that door, you don't control the outcome at all. And so this is part of the narrative that Today, the Palestinians have always tried to control the narrative on Munich in a way that avoids some of the reality of the horror of the event. Um, and that becomes a problem when we look at today's political construct and we say, okay, well, maybe we should think about boycotting Israel in sport. We'll hold the phone. You have to deal with each file on its own merits. And in this file, given the history, you know, and I know that I'm not a, a voice out there that a lot of people would necessarily agree with. It's a really bad choice because there's still so much we don't know. But what we do know is very ugly. And um, most importantly, you know, in 72, that attack did quite literally put Palestine on the map and was integral to the recognition of the Palestine Olympic Committee later by the International Olympic Committee in 1993. So the IOC for decades wanted to ever avoid, you know, they wanted to ensure that this conflict did not continue in sport. I see. So you you, you stated that the while you were living in Gaza, that you were told on several occasions that the attack on Munich had two targets, which were Israel and the IOC. Why the IOC? I'm starting to understand, but if you could explain that. <laughs> yeah, so we don't have archival evidence of that. I think that most of the archival evidence, um, if those rumors are true, would be found ultimately in the PLO archives, which Israel captured in the 1982 invasion of Lebanon. Those archives are held until a final peace agreement and would be transferred to Palestinians if there is a final peace agreement. But yes, I was told about an Olympic committee in the 30s, and I was told that Munich, for those who supported the attack, and not everyone, by the way, supports the attack. I want to make that clear. The former secretary general of the Olympic committee, who had been in that position from the time of Munich, seems not to have ever supported the attack. Um, But I think that, you know, those narratives about attacking the IOC come from a place within the Palestinian community to sort of 
seek some type of retribution for anyone who is complicit in the loss of Palestine in 1948. The dilemma, of course, there is that we don't spend a lot of time doing history and writing about how we also contributed to the loss of Palestine in 1948. And the file is really, in many ways, the first deep dive into a strategic file that's archivally based that shows that we simply mismanaged the negotiations. We were the weaker strategists. We had the weaker organizational behavior and culture, and we were pitted against each other. And the first person who came and said, we can help you, we didn't care whether they were Nazis or not. We went that route Mm -hmm. instead of doing what we were supposed to do, which was work to build our governance structures and cooperate. And what was sad about that is that the conflict was only on leadership. We were playing with Jews every day on the field of play. We were organizing sports for kids, for national sport championships every day, all year long from the 1920s until the 1940s, almost until the creation of the state. But we wouldn't concede that a Jew could be in a leadership position in sport because of the national implication for the Palestinian national cause. And that's really what caused the problem. So then you look at the pathway we chose, a Nazi pathway to the games. Well, that's a problem because the stated objective was clear what the Nazis wanted to do with the Jews. And so this is the dilemma, you know, of pretending on the one hand to say, well, we didn't really support Germany, but that's really not quite true in the sport file. And by the way, you know, that type of, you know, sympathies and apologia for Nazism existed everywhere, even in American circles, certain American circles. So I don't want to paint the picture to say, you know, all Palestinians are Nazis, but it's simply not true that we didn't collaborate with them in sport. We most certainly did. German researchers are beginning to pick up on what I've done, and I'm sure we will soon learn more. Um, So it is also very inappropriate today to allow the Palestinian national movement to put out these statements, or it's not even the national movement, it's actually the supporters of the Palestinian national movement to say Zionism is Nazism. I mean, this is ridiculous. This is an absolutely ridiculous comparison, you know, and it's like blaming the victim, you know, uh, and labeling them with the label of their oppressor. Uh, So if we want to have any serious understanding of how history, the way you discussed it yesterday, can influence policy today and try to understand who's to blame and who gets a slap on the wrist, et cetera, I mean, ultimately, I have to disagree to a certain extent with yesterday's uh, decision to put um, Black September only into the the jail um, or sorry to get the slap, because in the end, ultimately, you are responsible for the actions you take. And we started the ball rolling on 72. And I will say in remark, you know, in relation to those comments in Gaza about targeting the IOC to punish it for its decision to give the Jewish camp the sport file. Um, I will say that uh, I was told in Gaza, you know, that the stories I was hearing about that were not true and that it was the secretary general, actually, of the Olympic Committee in Gaza who told me to go research the history. And, um, you know, I was working in a very divided camp Mm -hmm. then, too. Mm -hmm. Fatah was split between reform of the authority or keep the old guard in charge, keep the corruption in play, all of that stuff. And so, you know, we've always struggled with a divided leadership. And then it's easy to just blame the Israelis. 
Um, but like we haven't, you know, I have to say going through the records, I was seeing organizational behaviors in the 1920s that are very similar to what I see today. And that just shows that we could be doing a lot more damage to our position than we would like to acknowledge. And therefore just pointing the finger at Israel is a, in some ways a cheap exit, even if there are legitimate concerns that need to be addressed with Israeli policymaking. I, I want to ask you, I'm very curious, at the end of the day, if you then had to pick one person or thing, it can be a concept that is to blame for the Munich massacre. Who or what would that be? It, it will, if you had been with us while we were recording. <laughs> yeah, so I think that there were three concepts. And I started my book with three excerpts from religious texts from the region. It's funny in a sad way that we in the region receive all these prophets and don't seem to listen to their wisdom. And so I did select three texts from, you know, uh, the Tanakh, the uh, Quran and the um, epistles actually. And the concepts that I was going for there are really related to behavioral patterns that you see in each camp. So for the Israeli camp, obviously the position is even if you have the strength Jewish wisdom will also say you don't necessarily do it, all right? So policy for that position should be moderated by the need ultimately to seek some type of calm so that the state can be preserved, right? Um, for the Christian position and the epistle selection that it took, you know, it really is about how you fight, right? How you win the race. And so... Um, St. Paul obviously was writing to the Hebrews at the time, and he was saying, look, who is it that actually gets the crown in the end? <laughs> it's not just those who browbeat and, you know, um, discipline their bodies, but it's the, it's the way in which you do things. So one can sympathize with the Palestinian position, but you are responsible for tactic, and tactic shouldn't for example, target certain groups, certain peoples, shouldn't falsify history. You know, we spend so much ta time talking about in Palestinian circles how Israelis falsify history. It's not as though we're not doing it as well. I mean, so this blame game that goes on is not helpful. And then for the Quran as well, you know, we're in a phase in the Middle East where Arab countries are a little bit intoxicated with sports. Certainly we're seeing a little bit more of that in the Gulf countries. But, you know, um, this is just a passing moment, our existence together. We get so affixed as humans to these large artificial constructs that we sometimes forget the basics. And in the end, we're all going to go, right? So why can't we work to all just get along? It would be a lot more constructive rather than living this torturous hell that everyone wants to impose on each other because we're all so arrogant. So I think that um, the big issue here in blame, connecting to those concepts, is there needs to be rational behavior. The IOC needed to understand from the get-go, rationally, that athletes died. It's like a school shooting and not putting up a sign for school shooting victims. I mean, it's crazy. You know, I want to remark um, regarding Kate, uh, Kate's remarks yesterday that we did have finally the first recognition at the opening ceremonies by Thomas Bach. And it is no accident that it happened because he is German. I think he did a fantastic job finally recognizing the athletes 
and we're in a new era there. And that's not about recognizing Israel or recognizing Jews or, you know, this is unfortunately the position that we will sometimes hear in our camp. It's about recognizing history. So we all have to be rational and recognize history. This will remain a complicated file for a long time, but building our policy positions on fake history will destroy everyone. And so the IOC was certainly culpable of that. The Palestinians also were too. Post-48, you can argue certain periods of Israeli history did that as well. But Israel started a movement in the 80s with the new historians and has recognized, even within their own historiography, that the way they handled the history in the 50s and 60s and 70s was incorrect. So we need that movement now in the Palestinian circle. All of our history is based on what we lost and what was done to us. Very little of it looks at what we did wrong. So before I let you go, I I, I just have to ask you, um, I'm I'm so glad that you actually listened to the episode before we did this uh, interview. Uh, So thank you so much for doing that. Was there anything that major that we missed? Did you at any moment throw your phone out the window? Uh (laughs) No, no. I I think that the main structural issue was only, yes, the German Olympic Committee has for decades, you know, not perhaps responded in the way that people with a vested interest would like, but the decision-making capability on the ground at the time was very limited. I mean, in the end, the chief negotiator was the mayor of the Olympic Village, Walter Troger, who just died, you know, and all respect due to Walter Troger, but, you know, they needed in the end to bring in an Egyptian head of delegation to do the translation. Mm. So there's all oh. sorts of levels of unprofessionalism because of the nature of an organizing committee not being very sophisticated. And in the 70s, they were very simple organizational structures. It's not like today with the multi-billion dollar you know, large complex organizational structures building uh, and organizing and securing in the way that we see it today. It was a much um, softer approach and it was very soft in Germany. And that's what led to the really the ability for the penetration. San, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical. Medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. With us here are producer Amanda Lund. Hello, Rebecca, and hello, Alarmy. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hello, hello. So... A lot to um, process, right? I, I feel. Yeah. I feel like we were given a lot of information. Um, yes, Amanda and I were scrambling <laughs> in the notes section oh my of gosh. the document, and I was adding to her notes. She was s- scratching off mine. We were. It was. It there was, was a lot was going like on a, behind the scenes. Crash yeah. course study group. I know there was. Uh, can I just real quick read the description of San's book? Oh, yeah. Because I think it's really interesting and it might help people sort of understand some of what he was saying. So, okay, okay. so this is uh, the, the description for the file, Origins of the Munich Massacre. Jerusalem, Berlin, Munich, Atlanta. The file unravels the compelling history of Jewish and Arab-Palestinian attempts to participate in the Olympic Games between 1920 and 1996. The book begins with efforts to form a Palestine Olympic Committee that represented Palestinian, Jews, Muslims, and Christians, in which Jews took a leading role and at which Arabs balked. Yet in 1936, a group of Arab Palestinians seems to have participated secretly in the, quote, Nazi Olympics. The subsequent political developments, degenerate conflict and deaths of 11 Israeli Olympians in the Munich massacre forestalled Palestinians' future Olympic participation for 60 years, when in 1996, a new Palestinian Olympic committee participated in the Atlanta Games. Today, tensions are at a new peak. A host of individuals and organizations are calling for the boycott of Israel from the global sports movement. What can we learn from this file's history? Can we define a pathway forward, one illuminated by the Olympic ideal? Mm. The Olympic ideal. Mm, That could have gone on the board. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the Tokyo Olympics are happening as we speak. And this is, you know, there's... It's prescient. It's it's meaningful. And, yeah. and Amanda and I, while while we were listening to it, mm-hmm. I don't know if the alarmy was doing this as well, but it was like, you know, in those detective shows where they have all those names on the board and the uh, and, and, and sort of like they keep changing around um, postcards, yeah. mo- moving things around and like drawing lines strings. between things. We have strings. Strings. Yeah, the with strings. like little push yeah. pins. That's, that's, what we, that's what we were doing. Yeah. And um, I'm not sure we have it all worked out. I think this book... Uh, you know, we didn't read the book. We didn't write the book. Um, we had this interview and there's more research that needs to be done because as he was saying at the end, it's so important to start to get history, to recognize history. Yeah. And, and it's so difficult to know what is the, what, what history is the correct history, right? Because it's written by humans. Getting the full picture. Yeah. 
Well, um, it's crazy, too. It feels like, oh, this was forever ago. But it sounds like we don't have all the information yet. And that San had to go to the dark web to get information about this, like just even as far as like how brutal the attack was. I mean, it's it's what we do know. It's still very brutal. But, you know, what he was saying about, you know, some of like the horrid details that are just coming out. Um, right. And that he, we just he, don't have access to all the information. Yeah. And and during the war, I think he was saying that there's a there's a file that one faction is holding about information about the other one and not releasing that information. So that he, he kept being very scrupulous in explaining that a lot of this stuff we don't have. What was the name? What was the term he used? He kept using, but it was uh, not academic, but it was he said we don't have, you know, evidence all of the information. Yeah, I forget what he said. I mean, that was not what documented he said. <laughs> evidence. Yeah. So I anything? S- oh, sorry, Rebecca. Anything you think we missed that we should put up on the board? Or well, uh, you know, I I want to say that I'm, I'm pretty proud that we put lack of world history education up on the board mm-hmm. <laughs> because I uh, n- not that that is what you know, we can pinpoint for this particular tragedy as, 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 as the thing to blame. But I do think that that's a really important um, thing to put up on the board for this because there's so much, I, I, I was, I was a little shook when he said he, when he mentioned something that like no country, he, I, he was talking about the Germans, um, but, and, and the divided on, uh, you know what east and west germany uh situation but no no country that's had a civil war can can be without a dark history oh yeah and he you know referenced the united states within that and it's it, it just i i was just a little um i was just shook at the moment where i was like uh, of course like wh- what what there's there's so much darkness there right um, well and, i mean in the and, south they call it the war of northern aggression I learned you learn that when you're like a teenager and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and and the only way to not overcome that, uh, but at least to attempt to find some kind of peace is to learn about history and learn about what that history is. And mm-hmm. also what he was saying is like to self-reflect and objectively acknowledge like your part in that history right Right. which was kind of at the end what he was calling for um yeah i think that's really interesting and so just to a one little quick correction we actually did send the bso to jail um but we were waited go back and forth yeah yeah and then we slapped the the Olympic Committee. And so Sal, uh, what he said, which I actually loved this. San, San. San, sorry. So San said, um, lack of rational behavior, which is like, how good is that? Like, we could send that to jail for any of these disasters. But I just, it's like, yeah, it's like, let's just like act rationally. Like, what did you really think this was going to accomplish? And I I just loved that. Yeah, I... uh let's let's remember that because i feel like going forward we might be putting that up on the board very yeah. Uh, often yeah i i yeah i love that too and i love how he arrived there he said we got to listen to the prophets we 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 ignore the pro- we ignore the prophets 
and he pulled straight from the Bible. Um, if you have the strength, you don't necessarily have to do it, even if you have the strength. Um, and your tactics, you know, you're responsible for your tactics. And it's sort of such the most simple lesson you can possibly teach. I mean, that's the first thing you learn from your parents when you're growing up is your, you know, responsibility and accountability. And, um, it's just still amazing that it it can uh, be applied, uh, to this sort of scenario in this sort of broad uh, context. Well, I, I feel like we're going to be thinking about this and processing a lot of this, uh, for a while. Um, and, all we can do, I mean, all we we can do is try to learn, try our <laughs> try our best to educate ourselves um, about world history and understanding conflict. It's only going to help us, right? I mean, I hope so. Let's see. How- <laughs> Otherwise, what have we we've been doing for the past two years? I mean, I- <laughs> something that this podcast has has given me is that just that exactly what you're saying is the. Just getting, we do a, I would say a shallow dive into these topics because we're pumping them out week after week. And we have the, but we have the benefit of, of this team that uh, puts a, an expert in front of us. Somebody comes along like San who, de- who de- dedicates his life to this yeah. subject, right? Um, in a sense, right? Yeah. And it opens up a window that, yes, wow, there's so much for us to learn and we shouldn't be afraid to do the research, to learn and, um, and, you know, to, to learn and grow from it. Well, uh, this has been a really interesting episode. Um, I, I look forward to, uh, uh, doing learning, um, more every week. (laughs) (laughs) We're all pretty rattled at the alarmist. (laughs) I'm just so glad to have you guys along on this journey. Uh, but yeah, uh, thanks to the alarmy. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Chris. And tune in next week because we are going to be discussing one of the, uh, perhaps, you know, about, uh, this, uh, female serial killer from the 17th century, Elizabeth Bathory. It's going to be interesting. Powered by ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Boll & Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Boll & Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BollAndBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.